Hello. Good morning. <laughs> Every week I come, the last three weeks, people are like, what is up with your hair? I'm like, it's growing back. I was at this conference in Montana the last two days, speaking with a bunch of pastors and their wives, and um, uh, <laughs> the first session I did, I, I didn't have a hat on or anything, and, and then the second session I came back the next day and I had a hat on, and there was these two old ladies in front, they're like, why do you have a hat on? Your hair is beautiful. And I was like, um, and their husbands were sitting right there with them, and I was like, should I take it off? Like, I don't really know what to do right now. Like, this is, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, this morning, uh, I'm going to attempt to jump into First uh, Timothy, and over the next couple weeks, really, we're going to lay a lot of groundwork for the book before we get into it, and I want to talk through the lives of Paul and through Timothy, talk through the city of Ephesus, set some context for us before we jump in, but I don't, we were worshiping, and I, don't, I know I always get accused of going so long, and I... I don't know where this is going to go, but we were worshiping this morning. There's something that really convicted me. Um, this last week as I was in Montana, <clears throat> I taught four sessions to a bunch of really tired pastors. And a lot of that was a result of COVID and just, I mean, our world and the pace of things right now over the last three or four years. And... Going into the last session, uh, it was the night before last, um, I was like really excited about all this content I had prepared, and I got up there to start teaching it, and it was almost like I just felt so convicted that my mind had sort of escaped my heart, like my mind had put together all this content, and yet my heart hadn't engaged the content that I had prepared because so much of it was for me. And I was sitting there talking to these pastors, and the last session I taught on, I was talking about being proactive leaders versus reactive leaders. And I was just saying, you know, it's so interesting, like over the last few years, um, we're just all guilty of leading out of a reactive state, where we're pastoring people out of reaction. And actually, what causes us to react? It's pressure. So we're making decisions, and we're doing things based on the pressure of people, not necessarily because we're being proactive. And when I think of some of the characteristics of a proactive leader versus a reactive leader, like somebody who's reactive responds by pressure. Um, It's somebody that just wants to people please and do what everybody wants. Whereas you think of somebody who's proactive, like Peter's the perfect reactive leader, right? This guy who's just like gung-ho for the Lord, but he's standing there in the Garden of Gethsemane and chops a dude's ear off. And what does Jesus say to him? He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, like, put the sword away. And then Jesus says, like, those who, those who draw the sword die by the sword. Pretty, pretty harsh statement that's made to Peter. Because of his reactive state, like taking things into his own hands, just doing thing, something, not necessarily thinking about it, praying about it, like really considering what the Lord is asking versus proactivity, which I would say the story of God in and of itself is very proactive, right? From the beginning of time, God knew what would happen in the end. And at any point in time, God could have been like, oh, I'm taking matters into my own hands, you know, which he sort of does with Jesus. But 
at any point in time, he, he could just like react. But he, he knows the beginning from the end and there's this patience in God to wait and let the whole story play out because he has a plan. And anyway, like one of the things I was thinking about was in the last three years of the life of our church and how many times I've just been so reactive and stressed. Like so many times making decisions because are we going to piss this person off? You know, these people off? Is this, what's, what's this going to do? How are they going to respond to this? And like really inside, like your heart starts to wither away because you're not really being proactive. Like where is God taking us and what is God doing? What's his story that he's writing through us right now? And how do we see that? Do we have the faith to step into that story? And so I don't want to overshadow this Timothy stuff, but I really felt while we were worshiping this morning, even as we get into this book, like we're about to broach maybe some of the craziest subjects we've ever had to broach in the history of our church in the next 16 weeks. And yet what I know is that God has a plan in all of this and that he's called us to be a church that isn't going to just sit around and not engage the hard conversations, but we're going to jump into them. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to hit the nail on the head, even if we can't, don't have it figured out. We're going to talk about it. Because you guys are living in a world that's literally devouring you. It's destroying us. And historically, the church is so guilty of not talking about the hard things because we're so afraid of what people will think. All the while, we'll just let people get devoured by the, word, the world because we won't engage the hard conversations really do theology together. What does the Bible say? How do we walk this out? That's some of what I want to talk about this morning. That's some of what I think the story that's written through First and Second Timothy is about, like doing something with what it is that we know. Um, I often, oh, so before I move on, um, so some of what I wanted to come with you guys this morning is to ask for your forgiveness in the way I've led through that in the last three years. As a pastor, where it's just been pressure and fear. And to ask for your forgiveness in that. But to also ask for your prayers because I feel like, you know, as a church, and I'm not just talking about Anthem, but I'm saying globally, we're on the brink. Like, God is really moving around the world right now. And he's calling his church globally out of stagnancy to be a people that we be, will be moved to action, a people that will no longer stand still, a people that will no longer just talk about the word, hear about the word, rumble about theology, but people that will actually put it to practice. And um, so as we step into this series in First and Second Timothy, like by no means am I a person that's like, we have so much good content in the next 16 weeks, you have to be here every week. This is the best you've ever heard. If anything, I'm like, more nervous than ever to teach through these books. And it's interesting to go try to grab content and um, resources and to learn because there's not many people that want to broach First Timothy. You can find a lot of teaching series on Second Timothy <laughs> or passages out of First Timothy, the ones we really like. And then there's just a bunch of skirting around the rest of it because it's really difficult to make sense of. And so we're going to try our best to do that in the next, you know, 16 weeks just through 1 Timothy. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in, and I'll try to not keep you past 1 o'clock today. Jesus, I thank you so much um, just for your church. I thank you for the work that you're doing here, God. It doesn't escape me that 
It's your hand, it's your spirit that is guiding every facet of your church, Big C, globally. And what an honor it is to be pieced into that, God, to be part of the story. And this morning we come before you, Jesus, and we ask that you guide this time, that you ordain this moment, Jesus, that you'd open up hearts to receive from you, that you'd set aside agendas and fears, our reactivity. This morning we just want to engage you wholly and ask that you come, that you have your way with us, Jesus, that you move through us, that your hand be upon your church, that we be reminded of how much you love her, the great sacrifice you paid for her. What an amazing, amazing privilege it is to be a follower of Jesus in the times that we're living in. So I pray, Jesus, during the next 16 weeks that you just guide this discussion. You'd be with all the teachers. You'd be um, involved in our prep time. God, that you'd be with our church, that um, we can do theology well with one another, that we can see things differently but still be united by the same spirit. And uh, Jesus, may you just bless this time this morning. Fill us this morning with your joy and your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> awesome. Y'all good? You're good for three hours. Yeah, perfect. Um, so to piggyback a little bit, um, I spend a lot of time with other pastors, and I really enjoy hearing about what God's doing in churches all over the world. Like, it's really fun to hear about how God's moving everywhere. Um, this past week, I interacted with a bunch of pastors. It was a large conference with a denomination that I came out of that was in town here this last week, and so I got to see some familiar faces and interact with some people that I hadn't seen in a while. Then I went to Montana and was with like 60 churches from around, around Montana that met in Bozeman this past week. And um, it was a real blessing like to encourage and to challenge and to be with these other pastors. But one of the things I realized is that you don't have to be around a lot of pastors for very long to hear them talk about church growth. Like, it's just their go-to, you know? It's almost like every pastoral conversation should be prefaced with, lay your, figure out how to say this nicely. Just lay your numbers to the side, let's just be real. How are you? And after COVID, there was a majority of churches around the U.S. that were just decimated, like that shrunk overnight, like people were just gone. It's really interesting. They said, a stat that I recently read said that 20% of the core leadership of most churches in the United States aren't returning to church. And 20%. And so think about that from just a pastor's perspective, who those are the people that they would count on the most, the people that were in the trenches with them, and 20% of them aren't returning. Hence, you have a lot of pastors right now that are just discouraged. So any, any like little hint of growth at all is just exciting to, to pastors nowadays. Stories of people coming to faith in Jesus, though for many pastors are few and far between, like there's something very exciting about that for them. But it's always an interesting conversation to me because I've never been into church growth strategies. It's just never appealed to me. My, my, my mind is too simplistic. And it just sort of wants to say, like, do what Jesus is asking you to do and then trust him with the outcome. You know, it's just like how I've all, and I'm, I don't say that, like, boastingly. I just say, like, I just am not a deep thinker. Um, <laughs> so I'm just like, yeah, you know, God's got to do this. But one of the pastors of the conference I was at was like, your skateboard brain is messing with my flanograph faith. And I was like, <laughs> all right, that's interesting. 
is that, is that my, my stupidity is messing with, you know, <laughs> like your knowledge, like I don't really understand how to take that. But um, sometimes the reality is like churches will go and grow and churches will shrink. But one of the most common misunderstanding, misunderstandings in the church today, at least in America, is the belief that somehow numerical growth is somehow automatically sort of connected to or ultimately determines the spiritual health of a church. So if we see growth, it must be good. Something good is going on there. To say it another way, when, when people see a church growing quickly and th there's like a lot of numbers, there's this natural assumption that the church is somehow more healthy than maybe the small church around the corner that isn't growing as quickly. And a phrase that I think you hear once in a while um, in, in reference to the church, churches that are growing fast, is people will say things like, I don't know what they're preaching or what they're doing, but they must be doing something right if. Look at all the people that go there. Like those are the kind of the, the, the spatterings of things that you hear. And the problem with this is that it's just simply not true. It's false. The, the truth is that if you do any sort of careful study through God's word, it'll teach you that numerical growth isn't necessarily an indication of whether or not a church is healthy. It's not about that only. That there are some really healthy churches that are growing rapidly, and there are some really unhealthy churches that are growing rapidly all across the world. There are some really small churches that are super healthy and doing amazing things and impacting the lives of one person at a time. And there are some very large churches with a ton of unhealth in them, just like not structured properly, and like it's just kind of a mess. And how quickly something grows doesn't necessarily determine if it's healthy or not. And I'm sure, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but does anybody know what the fastest growing religion right now in the United States is? Islam. Fastest growing, go online and start typing, where are they building um, uh, mosques? And you're going to see stories of all over the country, cities you'd never even imagine where these massive mosques are being constructed right now. And so it's, it's the fastest growing religion right now in the United States. But I doubt if any of us in this room would sit back and say, well, I don't agree with everything they teach, but they must be doing something right. Because <laughs> it's growing so fast. Like, we just would not say that, right? And so I want to clarify that, that for me, like, numerical growth, important to some degree. Like, we want to see life change. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We care about this stuff to an extent. Like in the book of Acts, you see numbers mentioned numerous times throughout the book of Acts. 3,000 come to faith, 5,000 come to faith, whatever it is. And while the church is getting started in the book of Acts, like it's growing and it's, they're talking about the amounts of people that are being converted, that are coming to faith in Jesus. But the desire is that the church would grow primarily through the gospel of Jesus being shared and people who never knew Christ responding to the to faith in Jesus, like repenting of their sin, putting their faith, faith and trust in him and their face, I guess, too. And then we begin to teach very carefully all that God has commanded so that they become faithful followers of Jesus. Like, this is important. This is part of health. That's the type of growth that we're interested in. But what might be even more important than numerical growth, I think, is spiritual growth. Like, it's depth. That's part of the health and the vitality of the church. We don't want people to just come to church. We want people to become faithful followers of Jesus. Like attendance 
is hit or miss. We want people to dive deep into God's word, to know and to submit their lives fully and completely to the Lord and his word. And I'm sure that you've heard the phrase in reference to church that that church is a mile wide and an inch deep. Which, you know, I've heard people even reference our church as being that at times. Which indicates that there's a lot of people, but maybe there's not a lot going on spiritually. And you know what? I want to suggest something this morning, because even as I was typing this this week, I was thinking, like, I hope that those words never come out of our mouths about another church. Unless, of course, there's a church propagating heresy, like teaching a false gospel. Down to call that out. But, but a church that's propagating the gospel, like we don't know what they're doing. We don't know how deep they are. In fact, it's not really what we're supposed to focus on. What we're supposed to focus on to do in this particular case is to be centrally focused and to see how we are doing and how our spiritual vitality is. How is our church? How are you right now? What is the depth in your life, in your relationship with Jesus? How rooted are you in him? Because I'm less concerned with what everybody else is doing and how they're doing it and more concerned with whether or not we are healthy and growing in our knowledge and our followership of Jesus. Is that happening here? We should should be concerned that we don't become a mile wide and an inch deep. Not them, us. But let's strive to become a mile wide and two miles deep, amen? Like, let's, let's go down. And if only we had, like, some instruction in the, from the word of God to figure out how to do this, right? And on-ramp First and Second Timothy. What an amazing text for us to actually see some of this in action. What does it look like? How are churches to be structured? How do we provide care for churches? In fact, the book was written for that very purpose. There was this challenge for Paul and for Timothy and for the people of Ephesus that as the church was growing rapidly, people are coming to faith in Jesus, people that were lost of the lost, how are they supposed to remain healthy? How are they supposed to grow spiritually? How are they supposed to put roots down? What was gonna protect them? How are they gonna continue to grow in Christ? And what I wanna do this morning is I wanna jump in and give you a little bit more background and then... um, and I know that might seem a little bit monotonous for some of you to go into some of this background work, but I want to do this so that we understand exactly what it is that we're reading. And as we continue to study this over the weeks to come, that you understand who it's written to, why it was written. Like, we have to understand that the Bible was written, was not written to us, but it was written for us. It was written to a specific people at a specific time in a specific language even, in a specific culture. That doesn't mean we can't extract anything from it or learn from it, but we have to understand some of that work. And it's just so hard sometimes when we Americans open up our Bibles and we just start reading without understanding who it is that he's writing to and why he's writing it, and even understanding some of the language that it was written in, there's all these nuances to it. So I want to begin in verse 1 with the author. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. It says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now, I don't think that Paul necessarily needs much of an intro to many of you. I think the majority of folks in this room are probably familiar with Paul. But I want to say a few things for some of you that might not have any context with regards to who he is. 
Before Paul came to faith, his name was Saul, before he came to Christ. He was a Pharisee, and he was not just a Pharisee, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was pretty instrumental, pretty powerful, high-ranking, like this, this religious official. Paul had this really great zeal for the law of God. In fact, so great that in the beginning of the infancy of the church, he, he becomes one of the primary persecutors of the followers of Jesus that were being saved at that time. As they're coming to faith, Paul's going after him. And he's not just going after him, he's like wanting to kill them. He's wanting to stop the propagation of the, this, the, this faith movement in Jesus. And so you see him throughout the book of Acts breathing threats against the church. He's imprisoning those who profess faith in Jesus, who want to follow him. In some instances, he's even putting them to death. And in fact, one of the first times that we see Paul in the scriptures is at the stoning of Stephen, like the, the first Christian martyr. And even though Paul doesn't pick up a stone to participate in stoning Stephen, Saul at the time, um, it, it says that we, we know that he's involved because everybody's throwing the stones and they're laying down their cloaks at Paul, Saul's feet, which is showing that it's by his authority that this is ultimately being done, that he's the one driving this and wanting them to stone Paul or Stephen and, and to kill these Christians. And so th this man's completely lost. Paul, is Saul at the time, is the most lost of the lost. And then all of this changes when Saul is walking down this road to Damascus on his way to go and persecute even more believers. And then what happens? He comes face to face with, face to face with Jesus Christ. How many of you guys in this room know that, that coming face to face with Jesus makes all the difference in the world? Man, I can preach that till I'm blue in the faith. Faith, face, I keep getting these two words mixed up. Same thing, right? Face, face. Um, but there was a season in my life when, you know, as, as a kid, like growing up in the church and being around the church, that it didn't take root in my heart. But there was a moment, a time when that happened and it became very real to me. Like relationship with Jesus was far more than something I talked about, something I, I went to or, you know, people that I knew or my family even. It was far more than that. Like it was personal. And you can come to a church gathering and you can try to pray, you can listen to a sermon, you can read the Bible, but until you come to a place in your life where you encounter a relationship with Jesus, actually nothing changes. And I know that world because I've experienced that world. Most of us in this room have experienced that. So Paul, Saul, encounters Jesus on this road and not only does Jesus save him, but he also calls him. And he also sets him apart as a leader of the church. He becomes what's called an apostle of Jesus Christ. So when I say apostle, I want to be clear because that's a bit confusing in our day and age. You hear many streams of church throughout the world using the term apostle in different ways today. Uh, I bet, I've met people that had, were self-proclaimed apostles. Anybody ever met those people? Apostle Joe. You're like, oh, you kind of sketch me out. You know what I mean? Like, um, It's weird. But when I use this word in reference to Paul, I'm using it sort of in the most narrow way, the strictest way possible, right? We're talking about the original 12 apostles that Jesus set apart, that Jesus hand chose. Jesus literally sent them out. Those were the apostles. They had a special level of authority in the church during this apostolic age. When Paul says that he was chosen by Christ to be an apostle, he's putting himself in the same category, the same level of all the other apostles before him. 
He's saying, I have the same authority, I have the same calling on my life as the other 12. And so Paul has great authority, but this isn't something that he just chose for himself. It wasn't something, he didn't self-appoint himself as as an apostle. It was Jesus himself, it says, who chose, called, appointed, equipped, and authorized Paul for this role. Jesus did that. In the next uh, section of verse one, it says, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So he says that the command came from him to reach the Gentiles and take the gospel to the Gentile nations. That was Paul's call. So that apostleship and command was given to him by Jesus himself. Now, not to bore you with this, but it's interesting in his phrasing when he says, the command of God, our savior. It's interesting when Paul says this because that's actually kind of unique for Paul to make that statement because what Paul normally does is he sort of reserves that name savior for Jesus only. But, but what we see is a little bit of his Old Testament theology coming through here, right? That, that where salvation really begins is with God himself and that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And I think that's what's in mind here when he says that it was a command of God, our savior. Like there's these two facets to God that we see there, God and our savior, Jesus. And so what he's saying is that when your salvation started many, many years ago, like before you and I were even a twinkle in our mom's eye, God actually called us. He saw us. Before the foundations of the earth, he actually determined the plan to redeem us and to save us through the death of his son, Jesus. But then he's also looking to the end. Even though we're saved, even though we're being saved, like the the fulfillment of our salvation, of all that God said that he would do for us, the fulfillment of our salvation will be accomplished one day when Jesus returns, amen? One day he's coming back. Now, I, I don't know what gets you excited about the return of Jesus. Maybe it's the fact that you don't have to pay taxes anymore, right? Or put gas in your car or worry about a political side, like, Amen to those things. But let me tell you what excites the heart of a believer in Jesus Christ. The fact that we get to be with Jesus and that he's our hope. Like that's it. And he's the one who's coming and that's who we want to spend eternity with. Like forget about all of the junk on this earth. Like I get to be with Jesus and so that really is the key. That's what sort of gravitates our hearts to him. He says that, that, that were who commanded, that, that he was who commanded him to go and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. It was God himself that commanded him to do that. So every time we see Paul in the book of Acts, what's he doing? He's doing the very thing that he was commanded to do. He's taking the gospel to all of those that are Gentiles, the non-Jews. And he's going from city to city where the gospel had never been. Um, Paul takes three missionary journeys, like he scatters out over all these cities and he goes out and he not only preaches the gospel, but he supports and encourages the churches. And so go back even further before 1 Timothy was written, five years prior, and I want to take you to the book of Acts, chapter 19. This is going to give us a little bit more background to, to something that I had alluded to a couple moments ago, but you're going to actually see it right here in the text. In Acts 19.8, Paul's doing what Paul does. He he goes to a continent, he begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and notice what it says in verse eight. It says that he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So this was Paul's MO, that he would go to a place where the, the gospel was never preached, 
And on the first Sabbath day, he, he would go into the synagogue, he would begin to preach the gospel, he would preach it powerfully, he would preach it boldly, and then guess what happens when somebody preaches the gospel powerfully and boldly? People begin to respond to the gospel of Jesus. And so we see all of these people beginning to come to faith, and they're in the city called Ephesus, and all these new believers, and they're watching the birth of the church, and then notice what happens in verse nine. This continues until verse nine, which says, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So the, the, the name the way was a terminology that was given, a name that was given to the believers in the first century. Like I love that name. They were according to the way. And he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So I don't know if you catch that, but let me rewind for a quick second. Paul's sharing the gospel, and then he's shut down. People are, people are like, we don't want you around here. Like, get out of here. We don't want this message. And so he decides instead, instead of going wide, that he's actually going to go deep. And so he gets these new believers that have been sharing the gospel and he disciples them. Like he actually invests in them deeply and he's pouring the word of God in them. It says that for two years he didn't cease. He just disciples them and invests in them and he just keeps preaching and teaching the word of God to them until they get it. And how do we know they get it? Because they understand the great commission, right? They, they take what they're being taught and they begin to share the gospel to those that are around them. And the scriptures say this one church in Ephesus reaches the entire continent of Asia. This one group of people shares the gospel so that it says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, both Jews and Greeks. That's maybe the best viral campaign I've ever heard of, right? Without any social media or marketing. Like, I'm not sure if our own church has propagated the gospel in our own community of 100,000, let alone reach a whole continent. Imagine that, it's moving so fast, it's amazing. And what happens when the gospel of Jesus is being preached is that people are coming to faith in Jesus. Did you know that it's the only way for a church to grow authentically is through this widespread circulation of the gospel? That's how it happens. There's no way for real, the, the real church to be able to grow apart from clear preaching of the word, teaching, living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. And so they're sharing it, and you see this amazing growth, and that's what Paul is about, and it's important to him. Like, he wants to see the kingdom of God expand, but it's not the only thing that Paul cares about. If you look at Acts 20, 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, listen to this, will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That sounds so gnarly. Paul's like a bit panicked, right? He knows this. We don't know how he knows it, but he knows that as soon as he leaves, these wolves, these people, which are false teachers, are gonna come in and they're gonna start to attack the church. Not physically, but they're gonna attack them with false teaching. They're gonna try to confuse the followers of Jesus. They're gonna try to draw them away from the truth that is the word of God. And so they're, they're gonna get in there. They're not only gonna be attacked from those that are coming from the outside by these wolves, but what is he going to say? That they're actually gonna be attacked from those coming up with inside the church as well. Crazy. 
And the way they're, they're going to seek to weaken the church is by what? Through false teaching and through a lack of truth. There's no plumb line. There's no groundedness. There's no foundation. And he says that there will be a twisting of the truth. And ultimately, what weakens the church the most is when the church is no longer holding to the truth, no longer preaching the truth, no longer holding to it, sharing it, giving it, expounding on it. Like, they just disregard the truth of altogether. That, that parents are no longer teaching it to their kids. That, that we're not teaching it to the next generation. I mean, I just spent two days with 60 churches, primarily pastors that were 65 and older, with older demographic churches saying, how do we reach the younger generation? We have to do something to go after the generations behind us. And it's not just about preaching the gospel and inviting them to faith in Jesus. It's about walking with them and investing in them and discipling them and teaching them the ways of Christ. Not our traditions, the ways of Jesus. And so Paul cares a lot about sound doctrine. That we teach it right. That we're strong, that we're bold. And when we don't teach it, when we teach false doctrine, when we begin to, to fail to teach what's true, that's when the church becomes very weak. And I think this is demonstrated in two ways. And, and give me a little bit of grace over the next few minutes as I talk about this. But this has become really apparent with, for me the last few days. Um, but I think this is recognized through apathy and ignorance. There's a massive struggle for people that are in the church. And it's a challenge that's sort of depending on how old you are. So here's a little ageism for the next few minutes, right? If you don't wanna come back next week, you don't have to. But here's often what happens. In an older generation, if you consider yourself part of the older generation, and I know that's really hard to determine because some of you that are part of it don't wanna consider yourself part of it, right? But everybody older than me thinks I'm part of the younger generation, and everybody younger than me thinks that I'm part of the older generation. Um, I think I'm part of the perfect generation. <laughs> Any other Gen Zers in the house? Yeah! You know, like, <laughs> I'm 44, okay? Um, but if you can look at your life, one, a pastor said this to me a couple days ago, and, uh, and realize that you have less days ahead of you than you have behind you, you're probably part of the older generation. <laughs> Which I would probably fall into that category, to be honest. And what I love about having a wide span of, of generations represented in our church, which has really been part of our heart from the beginning, like how do we bring the generations together? Because that seems hard. We don't naturally see things together. There's a lot of differences. But, but I think seeing the wide span of generations in the church is actually a sign of health. I think it's really neat. We don't want to be one generation. We don't want to be just a homogenous church. I love seeing babies, tons of babies, like more babies than I've ever seen in my life. They just keep coming. I mean, it's just like, you know, there's 500 kids back in the kids' ministry, and there's three or 400 of you in here. Like, they've outnumbered us. It's nuts. Um, but it blesses me. But if you're older, there's this challenge for you, and here's what the challenge is, is that God has gifted you, most of you, with a lot of knowledge. God has gifted you with wisdom, and, and, and I'm sort of speaking in generalities here because age doesn't equate, always equate to wisdom and knowledge, right? 
But what the word of God assumes is that if you've been walking with Jesus for a long period of time, if you're in the word for years, if you're learning, if you're doing the due diligence to sort of flesh out your faith with fear and trembling, as Paul says it, then when you get older in age, you're gonna know a lot about the word of God. You should know a lot about it because you've studied it, you've chewed on it, you've like really wrestled with it for years. And then there's gonna be a bunch of wisdom that you have to pass on to the next generation, the generations behind you. And so the older you get and the more wisdom and time with Jesus you have, you should be able to teach. You should be able to instruct, to encourage, to edify a younger man or a younger woman in the faith with the truths of God's word. And the challenge for you will often be what I call, what I will call apathy. Is that as you get older, and I know you think I'm not old, but like the other day I was with a buddy of mine. We sat for two hours and had a cup of coffee and when I got up, my body hurt. And I looked at him and I'm like, does your body hurt from sitting for two hours? He's like, yeah, dude, my back hurts. And I'm like, that's just our age, you know? So you don't think I'm old, but I'm older than you think. And when you get to become older, all of a sudden things begin to hurt and there's all these new norms in life, aren't there? that you've never had to wrestle with before. These things begin to sort of set in. And, and you're looking at these things thinking like, man, this is really tough. It's tough to get older. And you begin to not have the energy that you once had. Like, I'm feeling that sometimes. And the danger is this, is that it's, it's not the older, that the older generation doesn't know the word of God. Like, you know the word of God. A lot of you in this room know it better than I have. You've, You've wrestled with it and read it your entire life. And if you've been faithful to study it, then you know it. But the danger is that when you don't have the energy anymore, you become apathetic. So you become somebody that knows it, that doesn't practice it and doesn't teach it. Because I'm tired. I've been there and I've done that. And, and you hear that sometimes with the generation when they say things like, yeah, we used to serve a lot in the church. You know, we, we were super involved, but right now we're just, we're getting older. We're sort of past that place. We don't really have the energy for that anymore. And I get that. Like, I understand it. But I want you to know this morning that knowledge apart from energy and doing is not an example of what health is all about. It has to be the pairing of the two. Now, you younger people don't get to just sit there and listen and be like, amen, you know, like, teach us. But what I love about the young, younger generation is you have tons of energy. It's amazing. Like, I know young people are supposed to make you younger, but I'm getting to the age where younger people, like, wear me out, right? <laughs> For the first time in my life, I'm like, you exhaust me. Like, I can't keep up with you. There's tons of energy. Like, I get tired watching you. But this is the beauty about younger people is that they love to dream, right? And, and I don't mean like weird dreams, but they love to dream about what it is that God is doing and what he's doing in them and what it looks like to take steps of faith, to trust God with everything. They love to sit around and talk about the great things, the miraculous things that God can do. It's encouraging. They love to plan and they love to do. And I love to be around that type of energy, to be honest with you. Like I remember those days in my life. I love it. But the danger for the younger generation is that their knowledge doesn't always match their energy, right? It's kind of like ignorance on fire, right? It's like, I'm gonna do it. I don't know how, we're just gonna make it happen. Like, we just go for it. 
And their passion and their energy says, like, just do something for God. But sometimes it leads them to do things for God that aren't even doctrinally sound, right? I don't, I probably shouldn't, but I'm doing it anyway. You know, it's gonna reach people for Jesus. People looked at me like that, like reaching skateboarders. Like, I was often outcast from the church. Like, I, I would go to these conferences and pastors would be like, teach me how to get the kids off our property because they're ruining our curbs. And I'm like, Okay, we just spent $20,000 fixing the curbs on our church property, and these skateboarders are destroying it. What should we do? And I'm like, let them skate it. Go out there and hang out with them. Pray with them. Like, take them a hot dog. They're like, but we spent $20,000. I'm like, it seems like a worthy investment to lead somebody into the kingdom forever, you know? Like, and so there, there's things about the youth that are also just like, it's a bit ignorant. I got a ton of passion. I haven't really thought that one through very well. But if you're in that older generation and you're thinking like, I know these truths, but man, I'm struggling with moving and doing, I want to encourage you that it's easy to become a gatekeeper of the truth in your old age, but never lift a finger to do anything about what it is that you know. Nothing will frustrate the younger generation more than being a gatekeeper of the truth that doesn't actually want to take what they know and put it to action and teach others to put it to action. It's frustrating. And it's discouraging, again, to a younger generation because they look at them and say, they say to themselves, like, why aren't they doing anything? Like, they're supposed to know all this. They're, they're not acting on it. They're not sharing the gospel. People are dying. Like, let's go and do something about it. And so oftentimes, this is one of the major reasons that we even see church plants happen in America is because people just, oh, we can't really agree. And it seems like stylistically we're different, generationally we're different. So we should just send a church out, which I just think is the worst church planting method ever. Because what it does is it says, instead of trying to figure out how wisdom and action are paired together, we're going we're gonna to separate wisdom and action and all you people with action, just go do things without any wisdom. And all you people with wisdom, just guard your wisdom. But good luck seeing anybody come to faith in Jesus. And we need each other. We need each other. That's part of a healthy church. John Stott says this. He says, Jesus came saying that he was the truth, that he had come to witness to the truth, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, and that the truth will set us free. He said that if Jesus was that much about truth, and then we too in our churches ought to be about God's truth. Now, let me give you one more passage and we'll kind of head towards uh, the end, some ending thoughts. But in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, mark this passage in your Bibles. This is maybe the key theme and verse for all of 1 Timothy. So you can understand what this, push, this book is all about. Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon. That's how he starts it. In other words, Paul knew that he was going to be delayed, that he wasn't going to be able to get there on time to, to come to the church to help them out. And remember what the problem is, is that people are coming to faith in Jesus, but it's lacking structure. It's lacking rootedness to the word. And so they're going off the rails a bit, and he wants to make sure that they remain healthy. And so he's writing to them. To them. And so he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Did you know that there was a way to behave in the household of God? A, a way that honors God and doesn't dishonor him. And we're not talking about hats and flip-flops. Like, that's not what I'm referring to. 
We're talking about honoring God by doing things God's way, like the way that he lays out for us in scriptures. And so in this book, what he's saying is, I'm gonna lay out truth to you, and if you wanna be healthy, you'll know this truth, preach this truth, you'll actually demonstrate this truth, you'll live by this truth, you'll pass on this truth, and that's the key to the church, being strong and healthy. And I love the last part, he says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Like, if the church doesn't submit itself to the truth of God's word, then who will? No one. He says, this is the key to that health. Like, I love that phrase. You may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. Like, there's a way to behave. There's a way that we're to function within the church of God. The church of God is not a place to just freestyle, right? It's also not a place to just sit there and go, hey, man, just do whatever you want. Calvin writes this, he says, we therefore teach that faithful ministers are now not permitted to coin any new doctrine, but that they're simply to cleave to that doctrine to which God has subjected, subjected men without exception. So functioning as a church is serious business for Paul. He cares a lot about what they're doing, the order in the church, and it ought to be serious for you and I. Because we're living in a day and age where the church is just becoming watered down and it's lacking any order at all. It's sort of like um, the, the night and day contrast between India and the, the United States for me. Like India is just under chaos. You're like, is there any order here at all? No, there isn't. You know, they, there's no systems. There's, no, there's nothing happening there that makes any sense. And we're so used to something that's so buttoned up. And somewhere Jesus is kind of in the middle of that, right? Where there's this like, faith and I'm gonna move and go and I don't really, I'm gonna trust, I don't really know how it's gonna happen, but I'm also tensioned to sound doctrine and I'm also tensioned to the body of Christ and structure is actually a good thing. And there's some really tough stuff that we're gonna navigate in these books over the coming weeks. A lot of stuff that people just don't wanna talk about at all. Like, like it, it would seem to me as though, just go do your research but it's so hard to find churches teaching verse by verse through these books. It's really hard, and I get it. I've been shaking for weeks, you know, thinking about wrestling through some of these things, but I think it's a very relevant time in church history to just dive in, to figure it out, even if we don't have it figured out, to try our best. And honestly, I can't think of a better book to dive into in this season of our church, Anthem. And here's the beautiful thing about this book is that as long as we preach books like this, we may never have to worry about even building a church building because everybody's leaving, right? <laughs> so like it actually could save us money in the long run. I've been really pondering that. So next week when you show up on Sunday night, we're gonna be like, well, we're gonna talk about some hard things and 50 people will fit fine in this building. <laughs> you know, we'll be good to go. But I wanted to give you, real quick, I'll, I'll end with this, an overview of sort of five things that Paul's gonna touch on in this book that we're gonna deal with. One, how to preserve sound doctrine in the church. He's gonna talk about that. He's gonna come against people preaching false doctrines in the church in Ephesus and how to navigate that as a church. Two, he's gonna deal with the roles of men and women in public worship. Like this is a cultural hot topic and not something that many churches wanna talk about. We're gonna to have to have this discussion and I'm actually really looking forward to it. Third, the conditions and sort of expectations for pastors and, and deacons and elders within the church. Specifically, how, how do they function? What is their role? What are, what, what, what's their purpose in the church? 
four, um, instruction to young pastors on how to teach in a way that people are going to listen to them and not despise them. Like, do we actually want to listen to the youth that God has put in our church? Even partially, do we believe that the kids in the kids' ministry every bit as followers of Jesus as us? That they can pray for the sick? That they can cast out demons? <laughs> that they can study God's word? Like, they are just as equipped as you and I. Five, lastly, is the church's attitude towards material possessions we'll get into. That sounds terrifying today. Because we have a lot. And these are really, really difficult things that we're about to go through. So if you like wrestling, um, if you like chaos, then I want you to come be present on Sundays and work through this with us. You're gonna love it. Um, you're gonna feel tension over the next few months. As we unpack this, you're gonna literally see the church shrink right before your eyes. It's gonna be crazy. Um, I'm, I'm joking, kind of not, but mostly. But here's what I would ultimately say. Is do we want to see people changed and transformed into the image and the likeness of God? I want that. Like real church in real time, I want that. Because I think I'm guilty of even pastoring in seasons where I didn't want real church in real time. I just wanted to get through my day and my week. I'm tired. I feel the pressure. I sense the fear. I'm not sure if I want to broach the conversation or set the trajectory into something that's going to be difficult to work through. But I think we're in a season in the church in America where we have to. We have to broach these conversations. Um, when we merge the church with Hayden Friends, I'll ask the, the worship team to come up. But when we merged the church with Hayden Friends, uh, 11 years ago it was. I'll, I'll tell you what, I had differing perspectives on scripture, theology, style, practice. And the best conversations I had were sitting with 80 year old women sitting across my desk in my office crying because change was so hard for them and I'm crying because change is so hard for me and we're praying together and by the Spirit's leading he's strengthening in us even though we don't see everything the same I think it's a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be it's not homogenous we're wrestling through things we're sitting across the desk from one another sometimes differing in perspective but saying we have a lot to learn from one another, even though stylistically, even though some scripture we see differently, but we are united around the same things, the things that matter, and we believe that the Spirit is bringing the church together, all different backgrounds and walks of life, the Jews and the Gentiles, that he's bringing them all into the fold. And I pray that that's our heart as a church, for us to be able to walk through difficult stuff, hear from the Lord together, and try to make our do our best to walk it out. So I'll leave you with this last passage. Um, in, in verse two, 1 Timothy 1, he says this, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he's wanting these things for Timothy. He's wanting these things for the original audience in Ephesus, right? He's wanting these things for you and I. And I guarantee that almost everybody in here wants these three things for their life, don't you? There's not a person that doesn't want grace, 
There's not a person that doesn't want to be extended mercy, and there's not a person in here that doesn't want the peace from God. And people all around will say, like, I want to be a healthy believer in Jesus. There will be people around that say, I want to be part of a healthy church, but you cannot be a part of his healthy church and taste his grace and his mercy and experience his everlasting peace apart from us submitting ourselves fully to the lordship of Jesus by way of his word. And that's what we're committing to. So for some of you, um, to push back a little bit, you have all the energy in the world, but will you commit yourself, submit yourself to the truth? so that you can combine both the energy and the truth. Some of you, you know the word of God and you have all this knowledge that's been built up with you, in you. you. You've talked about it, you know it. But in your heart of hearts, you've become apathetic towards doing anything about what it is you know and practicing the truths that Jesus has given you. And my prayer is that we end this service by just saying, Jesus, have your way in us but over the weeks to come that we actually watch this in action. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for opportunities to just walk through it verse by verse. We thank you, Jesus, that you're going to teach us through this. I pray, God, that you'd help us to set aside our agendas and our opinions, that we'd be a people that would read your word, would study your word, would seek you, Jesus, and ask for your heart, for your perspective, for your wisdom, for your peace, for your mercy, and for your grace. And I pray your hand be upon each of us as we enter into the season of the church. I thank you for each and every person here, God. It just is such an honor to be a part of your church on this planet. What an amazing thing. And I pray that your spirit would continue to move in your people in your way and that we would see the miraculous happen before our eyes as people come together, that it doesn't make sense that they would come together. The generations come together when it doesn't make sense because they see things so differently, but we would be committed to the things that matter. We'd be committed to one another, to walking this out, to strengthening each other with the strengths that you've given us, the gifts you've given us, that we would have a front row seat to just watching the gifts of God come together in our church and weave amongst one another and strengthen your church as a whole. And we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Next week, we'll, we'll dive into um, the life of Timothy. And we'll talk through Ephesus. And that'll be exciting. And the week after that, we'll jump into the text. So would you guys stand with us in worship?